Chapters 81 and 82 of The Way of All Flesh. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rhonda Fetterman. The Way of All Flesh by Samuel Butler. Chapter 81. So he fell away from all old friends except myself and three or four old intimates of my own, who were as sure to take to him as he to them, and who, like myself, enjoyed getting hold of a fresh young mind. Ernest attended to the keeping of my account-books whenever there was anything which could possibly be attended to, which there seldom was, and spent the greater part of the rest of his time in adding to the many notes and tentative essays which he had already accumulated in his portfolios. Any one who was used to writing could see at a glance that literature was his natural development, and I was pleased at seeing him settle down to it so spontaneously. I was less pleased, however, to observe that he would still occupy himself with none but the most serious, I had almost said solemn, subjects, just as he never cared about any but the most serious kind of music. I said to him one day that the very slender reward which God had attached to the pursuit of serious inquiry was a sufficient proof that he disapproved of it, or at any rate he did not set much store by it, nor wish to encourage it. He said, Oh, don't talk about rewards. Look at Milton, who got only five pounds for Paradise Lost. And a great deal too much, I rejoined promptly. I would have given him twice as much myself not to have written it at all. Ernest was a little shocked. At any rate, he said laughingly, I don't write poetry. This was a cut at me, for my burlesques were, of course, written in rhyme. So I dropped the matter. After a time he took it into his head to reopen the question of his getting three hundred pounds a year for doing as he said, absolutely nothing, and said he would try to find some employment which should bring him in enough to live upon. I laughed at this, but let him alone. He tried and tried very hard for a long while, but I need hardly say he was unsuccessful. The older I grow, the more convinced I become of the folly and credulity of the public but at the same time the harder do I see it is to impose oneself upon that folly and credulity. He tried editor after editor with article after article. Sometimes an editor listened to him and told him to leave his articles. He almost invariably, however, had them returned to him in the end with a polite note saying that they were not suited for the particular paper to which he had sent them and yet many of these very articles appeared in his later works, and no one complained of them, not at least on the score of bad literary workmanship. I see, he said to me one day, that demand is very imperious, and supply must be very suppliant. Once, indeed, the editor of an important monthly magazine accepted an article from him, and he thought he had now got a footing in the literary world. The article was to appear in the next issue but one, and he was to receive proof from the printers in about ten days or a fortnight. But week after week passed, and there was no proof. 
Month after month went by, and there was still no room for Ernest's article. At length, after about six months, the editor one morning told him that he had filled every number of his review for the next ten months, but that his article should definitely appear. On this, he insisted on having his manuscript returned to him. Sometimes his articles were actually published, and he found the editor had edited them according to his own fancy, putting in jokes which he thought were funny, or cutting out the very passage which Ernest had considered the point of the whole thing. And then, though the articles appeared, when it came to paying for them, it was another matter, and he never saw his money. Editors, he said to me one day about this time, are like the people who bought and sold in the book of Revelation. There is not one but has the mark of the beast upon him. At last, after months of disappointment and many a tedious hour wasted in dingy anterooms, and of all anterooms those of editors appear to me to be the dreariest, he got a bona fide offer of employment from one of the first-class weekly papers through an introduction I was able to get for him from one who had powerful influence with the paper in question. The editor sent him a dozen long books upon varied and difficult subjects, and told him to review them in a single article within a week. In one book there was an editorial note to the effect that the writer was to be condemned, Ernest particularly admired the book he was desired to condemn, and feeling how hopeless it was for him to do anything like justice to the books submitted to him, returned them to the editor. At last one paper did actually take a dozen or so of articles from him, and gave him cash down a couple of guineas apiece for them, but having done this, it expired within a fortnight after the last of Ernest's articles had appeared. It certainly looked very much as if the other editors knew their business in declining to have anything to do with my unlucky godson. I was not sorry that he failed with periodical literature, for writing for reviews or newspapers is bad training for anyone who may aspire to write works of a more permanent interest. A young writer should have more time for reflection than he can get as a contributor to the daily or even weekly press. Ernest himself, however, was chagrined at finding how unremarkable he was. Why, he said to me, if I was a well-bred horse, or sheep, or a pure-bred pigeon, or lop-eared rabbit, I should be more saleable. If I was even a cathedral in a colonial town, people would give me something. But as it is, they do not want me. And now that he was well and rested, he wanted to set up shop again but this, of course, I would not hear of. What care I, he said to me one day, about being what they call a gentleman? And his manner was almost fierce. What has being a gentleman ever done for me except make me less able to pray, and more easy to be preyed upon? It has changed the manner of my being swindled, that is all. But for your kindness to me, I should be penniless. Thank heaven I have placed my children where I have. I begged him to keep quiet a little longer and not talk about taking a shop. Will being a gentleman, he said, 
bring me money at the last, and will anything bring me as much peace at the last as money will? They say that those who have riches enter hardly into the kingdom of heaven. By Jove they do. They are like strollbrugs. They live and live and live, and are happy for a many a long year after they would have entered into the kingdom of heaven if they had been poor. I want to live long and to raise my children, if I see that they would be happier for the raising. That is what I want, and it is not what I am doing now that will help me. Being a gentleman is a luxury which I cannot afford. Therefore I do not want it. Let me go back to my shop again and do things for people which they want done and will pay me for doing for them. They know what they want and what is good for them better than I can tell them. It was hard to deny the soundness of this, and if he had been dependent only on the three hundred pounds a year which he was getting from me, I should have advised him to open his shop again next morning. As it was, I temporized and raised obstacles, and quieted him from time to time, as best I could. Of course he read Mr. Darwin's books as fast as they came out, and adopted evolution as an article of faith. It seems to me, he said once, that I am like one of those caterpillars which, if they had been interrupted in making their hammock, must begin again from the beginning. So long as I went back a long way down in the social scale, I got on all right, and should have made money but for Ellen. But when I try to take up the work at a higher stage, I fail completely. I do not know whether the analogy holds good or not, but I am sure Ernest's instinct was right in telling him that after a heavy fall he had better begin life again at a very low stage, and as I have just said, I would have let him go back to his shop if I had not known what I did. As the time fixed upon by his aunt drew nearer, I prepared him more and more for what was coming, and at last, on his twenty-eighth birthday, I was able to tell him all, and to show him the letter signed by his aunt upon her deathbed, to the effect that I was to hold the money in trust for him. His birthday happened that year, 1863, to be on a Sunday, but on the following day I transferred his shares into his own name, and presented him with the account books which he had been keeping for the last year and a half. In spite of all that I had done to prepare him, it was a long while before I could get him actually to believe that the money was his own. He did not say much, nor more did I, for I am not sure that I did not feel as much moved at having brought my long trusteeship to a satisfactory conclusion as Ernest did at finding himself owner of more than seventy thousand pounds. When he did speak it was to jerk out a sentence or two of reflection at a time. If I were rendering this moment in music, he said, I should allow myself free use of the augmented sixth. A little later I remember his saying with a laugh that had something of a family likeness to his aunt's. It is not the pleasure it causes me which I enjoy so. It is the pain it will cause to all my friends except yourself and Townley.
I said, you cannot tell your father and mother. It would drive them mad. No, 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 he said. It would be too cruel. It would be like Isaac offering up Abraham, and no thicket with a ram in it near at hand. Besides, why should I? We have cut each other these four years. Chapter 82 It almost seemed as though our casual mention of Theobald and Christina had in some way excited them from a dormant to an active state. During the years that had elapsed since they had last appeared upon the scene, they had remained at Battersby, and had concentrated their affection upon their other children. It had been a bitter pill to Theobald to lose his power of plaguing his firstborn. If the truth were known, I believe he had felt this more acutely than any disgrace which might have been shed upon him by Ernest's imprisonment. He had made one or two attempts to reopen negotiations through me, but I never said anything about them to Ernest, for I knew it would upset him. I wrote, however, to Theobald that I had found his son inexorable, and recommended him for the present, at any rate, to desist from returning to the subject. This, I thought, would be at once what Ernest would like best, and Theobald least. A few days, however, after Ernest had come into his property, I received a letter from Theobald, enclosing one for Ernest, which I could not withhold. The letter ran thus. To my son Ernest, although you have more than once rejected my overtures, I appeal yet again to your better nature. Your mother, who has long been ailing, is, I believe, near her end. She is unable to keep anything on her stomach and Dr. Martin holds out but little hopes of her recovery. She has expressed a wish to see you, and says she knows you will not refuse to come to her, which, considering her condition, I am unwilling to suppose you will. I remit you a post-office order for your fare, and will pay your return journey. If you want clothes to come in, order what you consider suitable, and desire that the bill be sent to me. I will pay it immediately, to an amount not exceeding eight or nine pounds, and if you will let me know what train you will come in by, I will send a carriage to meet you. Believe me, your affectionate father, T. Pontifex. Of course there could be no hesitation on Ernest's part. He could afford to smile now at his father's offering to pay for his clothes, and his sending him a post-office order for the exact price of a second-class ticket. And he was, of course, shocked at learning the state his mother was said to be in, and touched at her desire to see him. He telegraphed that he would come down at once. I saw him a little before he started, and was pleased to see how well his tailor had done by him. Townley himself could not have been appointed more becomingly. His portmanteau, his railway wrapper, everything he had about him, was in keeping. I thought he had grown much better looking than he had been at two or three and twenty. His year and a half of peace had effaced all the ill effects of his previous suffering, and now that he had become actually rich, there was an air of insouciance and good humor upon his face, as of a man with whom everything was going perfectly right which would have made a much plainer man good-looking. 
I was proud of him and delighted with him. I am sure, I said to myself, that whatever else he may do, he will never marry again. The journey was a painful one. As he drew near to the station, and caught sight of each familiar feature, so strong was the force of association that he felt as though his coming into his aunt's money had been a dream, and he were again returning to his father's house as he had returned to it from Cambridge for the vacations. Do what he would, the old dull weight of homesickness began to oppress him. His heart beat fast as he thought of his approaching meeting with his father and mother. And I shall have, he said to himself, to kiss Charlotte. Would his father meet him at the station? Would he be greeted as though nothing had happened, or would he be cold and distant? How again would he take the news of his son's good fortune? As the train drew up to the platform, Ernest's eye ran hurriedly over the few people who were in the station. His father's well-known form was not among them, but on the other side of the palings which divided the station-yard from the platform, he saw the pony carriage, looking, as he thought, rather shabby, and recognized his father's coachman. In a few minutes he was in the carriage driving towards Battersby. He could not help smiling as he saw the coachman give a look of surprise at finding him so much changed in personal appearance. The coachman was the more surprised, because when Ernest had last been home, he had been dressed as a clergyman, and now he was not only a layman, but a layman who had got up regardless of expense. The change was so great that it was not till Ernest actually spoke to him that the coachman knew him. "'How are my father and mother?' he asked hurriedly as he got into the carriage. "'The master's well, sir,' was the answer, "'but the missus is very sadly.' The horse knew that he was going home and pulled hard at the reins. The weather was cold and raw, the very ideal of a November day. In one part of the road the floods were out and near here they had to pass through a number of horsemen and dogs, for the hounds had met that morning at a place near Battersby. Ernest saw several people whom he knew, but they either, as is most likely, did not recognize him, or did not know of his good luck. When Battersby Church Tower drew near, and he saw the rectory on top of the hill, its chimneys just showing above the leafless trees with which it was surrounded. He threw himself back in the carriage and covered his face with his hands. It came to an end, as even the worst quarters of an hour do, and in a few minutes more he was on the steps in front of his father's house. His father, hearing the carriage arrive, came a little way down the steps to meet him. Like the coachman, he saw at a glance that Ernest was appointed as though money were abundant with him, and that he was looking robust and full of health and vigor. This was not what he had bargained for. He wanted Ernest to return, but he was to return as any respectable, well-regulated prodigal ought to return. Abject, broken-hearted, asking forgiveness from the tenderest and most long-suffering father in the whole world, 
if he should have shoes and stockings and whole clothes at all, it should be only because absolute rags and tatters had been graciously dispensed with, whereas here he was swaggering in a grey ulster and a blue and white necktie, and looking better than Theobald had ever seen him in his life. It was unprincipled. Was it for this that he had been generous enough to offer to provide Ernest with decent clothes in which to come and visit his mother's deathbed? Could any advantage be meaner than the one which Ernest had taken? Well, he would not go to a penny beyond the eight or nine pounds which he had promised. It was fortunate he had given a limit. Why, he, Theobald, had never been able to afford such a portmanteau in his life. He was still using an old one which his father had turned over to him when he went up to Cambridge. Besides, he had said clothes, not a portmanteau. Ernest saw what was passing through his father's mind, and felt that he ought to have prepared him in some way for what he now saw. But he had sent his telegram so immediately on receiving his father's letter, and had followed it so promptly, that it would not have been easy to do so, even if he had thought of it. He put out his hand and said laughingly, "'Oh, it's all paid for.' I am afraid you do not know that Mr. Overton has handed over to me Aunt Alethea's money. Theobald flushed scarlet. But why, he said, and these were the first words that actually crossed his lips, if the money was not his to keep, did he not hand it over to my brother John and me? He stammered a good deal and looked sheepish, but he got the words out. Because, my dear father, said Ernest, still laughing, my aunt left it to him in trust for me, not in trust either for you or for my Uncle John, and it has accumulated till it is now over seventy thousand pounds. But tell me, how is my mother? No, Ernest, said Theobald excitedly, the matter cannot rest here. I must know that this is all open and above board." This had the true Theobald ring, and instantly brought the whole train of ideas which in Ernest's mind were connected with his father. The surroundings were the old familiar ones, but the surrounded were changed almost beyond power of recognition. He turned sharply on Theobald in a moment. I will not repeat the words he used, for they came out before he had time to consider them and they might strike some of my readers as disrespectful. There were not many of them, but they were effectual. Theobald said nothing, but turned almost of an ashen color. He never again spoke to his son in such a way as to make it necessary for him to repeat what he had said on this occasion. Ernest quickly recovered his temper, and again asked after his mother. Theobald was glad enough to take this opening now, and replied at once in the tone he would have assumed towards one he most particularly desired to conciliate, that she was getting rapidly worse in spite of all he had been able to do for her, and concluded by saying she had been the comfort and mainstay of his life for more than thirty years, but that he could not wish it prolonged. The pair then went up to Christina's room, the one in which Ernest had been born. His father went before him and prepared her for her son's approach. 
the poor woman raised herself in bed as he came towards her, and weeping as she flung her arms around him, cried, Oh, I knew he would come, I knew, I knew he could come. Ernest broke down and wept as he had not done for years. Oh, my boy, my boy, she said as soon as she could recover her voice. Have you never really been near us for all these years? Ah, you do not know how we have loved you and mourned over you, Papa, just as much as I have. You know he shows his feelings less, but I can never tell you how very, very deeply he has felt for you. Sometimes at night I have thought I have heard footsteps in the garden, and have got quietly out of bed lest I should wake him, and gone to the window to look out, but there has been only dark or the grayness of the morning, and I have gone crying back to bed again. Still I think you have been near us, though you were too proud to let us know. And now at last I have you in my arms once more, my dearest, dearest boy. How cruel, how infamously unfeeling Ernest thought he had been. Mother, he said, forgive me. The fault was mine. I ought not to have been so hard. I was wrong, very wrong. The poor blubbering fellow meant what he said, and his heart yearned to his mother as he had never thought that it could yearn again. But have you never, she continued, come although it was in the dark and we did not know it? Oh, let me think that you have not been so cruel as we have thought you. Tell me that you came, if only to comfort me and make me happier. Ernest was ready. I had no money to come with, mother, till just lately. This was an excuse Christina could understand and make allowance for. Oh, then you would have come, and I will take the will for the deed, and now that I have you safe again, say that you will never, never leave me. Not till, not till... Oh, my boy, have they told you I am dying? She wept bitterly and buried her head in her pillow. End of chapter 82 Recording by Rhonda Fetterman